This is Louisiana Considered on WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. I'm Aubrey Uhas in for Diane Mack. Just ahead on today's show, we speak with Nancy Sorensen, the chancellor of Louisiana State University, Eunice, about how the two-year school has been successful in making sure students who want to go on to complete their bachelor's degree. And we learn about new research into just how fast the state's wetlands are disappearing. But first, many students who start a community college want more than an associate's degree. But making the jump to a four-year school can be challenging. Two new reports from the Aspen Institute and the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center released this month provide a detailed look at student outcomes state by state. Joining me now for more on how Louisiana is doing is one of the report's authors, Tanya LaViolet. Welcome to Louisiana Considered. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so, so to start, how does Louisiana measure up when you look at all of the states? Unfortunately, the news is not good. Uh, Louisiana is performing at a below average, national average rate when it comes to uh, transfer student access and success. Um, And when we look at the numbers uh, between 2007 and 2015, on some of those measures, there's actually been some backsliding. Um, So, you know, these numbers should uh, really motivate uh, state and institutional leaders to take a look at transfer pathways and, and, and try to make improvements for their students. So let's let's break down the numbers a little bit because it's it's not the same for all subgroups, right? I think we're looking at nationally that transfer and completion rate is about 16% in Louisiana, it's about 9%, but then we start looking at, you know, breakdowns by whether a student identifies as black or low income or an older student, 25 years and older. Um, what did we see in Louisiana in terms of those subgroups and how they compared to the total group? Well, the numbers in Louisiana aren't all that different from, or the trends that we see in Louisiana aren't all that different from what we see nationally. Um, So one of the, 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 the bright spots uh, in Louisiana is that the transfer rates for black students and for Hispanic students is higher than the overall average. Um, uh, But when then we look at the completion rates um, for those students, um, uh, in particular, black students and lower income students, uh, it's lower than the state averages. So, um, you know, the, the, the data can point to uh, some challenges. Um, and what we see here is especially for lower income students, um, the, the, for the transfer um, uh, process is, is, is challenging um, uh, and, and for black students as well. Um, and so what, did it, what is it that the state can do to support stronger outcomes, um, especially oh, overall, but especially for the students who are furthest um, from, uh, from, from opportunity and from uh, communities that historically uh, had lower uh, bachelor's attainment. Do you have a sense what Louisiana is is doing wrong or just not doing enough of at this point and, and why we see Louisiana having lagging so much further behind some of the other states? Well, I, I can't speak to Louisiana specifically, but what we see across the country is that the transfer pathway is just too complicated and 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 too challenging to navigate for students. Uh, part of that is um, the clarity of the pathway. You know, what does it look like for me to be a student entering in community college, and what are the steps that I need to take, the courses that I need to take to transfer to the four-year institution, um, and 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 succeed in a major there, um, and then 
not only have the pathway, but the assurance that if I follow this pathway, my courses are going to transfer and my credits are going to apply so that I can complete in a timely manner. And too often, that is not the case. Uh, students have to navigate really opaque systems. The pathways are not clear. And in addition to unclear pathways, the credits do not their credits do not transfer. And that the, the, the outcome that of that is lost time and money. And it is really dispiriting when the transfer pathway is kind of billed as this, this two years in community college and two years at the four-year institution that is going to save you a lot of money. But too few students reap the, the, the ideal benefit of the transfer pathway as the data in the report uh, shows. Um, and so um, it really is about bringing community colleges and four-year institutions together to examine the pathway, examine the institutional barriers that are in front of students, and to, in collaboration, uh, remove them uh, from, from standing in the way of opportunity for students. Um, and we've seen it. When community colleges and four-year institutions work together, strong outcomes for transfer students, for all transfer students, black, Hispanic, low income, uh, all transfer students is possible. So it sounds like one of the clearest best practices here are these strong partnerships between two-year and four-year institutions. So it isn't up to each individual student to figure out how do I get from, you know, my current school to my next school? And they, they have this clearly defined pathway that already exists for them that, that works. That's not going to drop them off and lose credits and, and turn a four-year education into a six- or an eight-year education. Exactly. And, and, and I think the other thing that uh, partnerships of community colleges and four-year institutions, uh, uh, the, the strong ones, what they do well is they provide a, a tailored advising and support for students along that pathway. They reach out early, uh, uh, sometimes as early as high school, um, throughout the community college experience and, you know, um, support throughout the transition to the four-year institution and uh, through the university experience to make sure that students are on track. Um, and that's especially important when the pathways aren't clear, but it is still important even when you do build those pathways. What are some other takeaways from your research that you would like either elected officials who might be working on this issue, um, but also um, leaders in higher education to be aware of and actively working on? Yeah. So I, when I when I look at this data, um, I think that there there's there's no one that should come away from this data and say, you know, we've we've got this. Uh, we're we're serving our students well. Mm. Um, so the the first thing that I would hope. Uh, higher education leaders, policymakers would take away from this is that we need to do something big. We need to do something drastically different than what we were doing before uh, because that's what the students need. So it's not enough to kind of nibble around the margins anymore. We need major systemic reform. So the, 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 those are two major takeaways. The The Two others, I'd say, is that there are things that we can do to improve the outcomes. And I think the data in the reports point us in some uh, right directions. Um, and I'll, I'll list three. One, to expand access to prior dual enrollment. 
Uh, we saw in the data that the students who uh, participated in dual enrollment in high school had much stronger transfer outcomes um, and bachelor's completion rates. Um, two, in the four-year reports, we saw that uh, associate degree completion before transfer, so uh, was associated with much higher bachelor's completion rate once the students reached the four-year uh, four institution. So what is it that states and institutions can do together to support uh, both prior dual enrollment and um, completion of the associate's degree before transfer. And the third thing is, when we look at the community college report, uh, in every single state, there are community colleges uh, that are achieving stronger outcomes than others and stronger outcomes for student groups who have been historically um, un un underserved and the furthest from opportunity. And so the question that everyone should be asking is, what are those community colleges and four-year institutions doing differently? Um, and asking what is it that we can learn from them and adapt from what they're doing that is serving students well and bring that to scale um, at other institutions. How, how can I bring that to my institution? How can I scale that across my state if I'm a state leader, for instance? Um, so we, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We need to take a look at what's not working, but also what is working and move toward more of what is working. Tanya LaViolet is Director of Research and Innovation at the Aspen Institute College Excellence Program. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thanks for having me. To get at what community colleges in the state are doing right, I'm joined now by Nancy Sorensen. She's the Chancellor of Louisiana State University, Eunice. It enrolls more than 4,000 full and part-time students and has the highest transfer rate among all two-year schools in the state. Chancellor, welcome to Louisiana Considered. Well, welcome. I'm Thrilled to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, let's start with the numbers. What percentage of your students tend to go on to four-year schools, and not only that, but ultimately earn their bachelor degrees? Well, uh, we were recognized in 2023 by the Biden-Harris administration for having the highest transfer rate in the state of Louisiana among Pell Grant recipients. So our, our overall transfer rate is actually higher than the 34% that we have been uh, noted for. And once our students get to a four-year university, uh, our most recent completion rate was uh, almost 50%. And nationally, the completion rate of baccalaureate degrees by two-year uh, students, once they get to an institution, is 16 percent. Is this something you all have been leading on for a long time, or did something happen that allowed you all to kind of defy the odds in a lot of senses? I, I think both of those things have, have, have happened. Um, the college has had a very, very good reputation in the sciences, in other STEM areas, in uh in, in the way in which we prepare our students for either work or or for transfer. So we're building on that reputation. We want to keep that momentum going. But we've also doubled down our efforts here uh, to make sure that students um, start on track and stay on track. We, we have uh, an entire on-track kind of initiative here and that is targeting retention and uh, completion of core knowledge. It's a campus-wide effort by our faculty and our staff. One of the things that researchers point to as being 
really important is kind of strong relationships between two-year institutions and four-year institutions so that students, when they are at the community college, can very clearly see, here are kind of my pathway options. Can you explain what that looks like at LSUE, what kind of relationships you guys have with other schools, and whether that's something that has grown over time? Well, it's certainly grown over time, but I'm happy to say that we have transfer agreements, articulation agreements in place with all of our four-year public institutions. We're actually developing new articulation pathways to uh, some of our private institutions uh, as well. So we're in the process of developing pathways with Franciscan University, which is located in Baton Rouge. Um, that's that's part of our responsibility to open the door for our students to as many of the avenues uh, that are, are possible. So we have excellent transfer to uh, LSU. We've got excellent transfer within the UL system. We have transfer pathways within the Southern system. And we're starting to develop other kinds of articulation pathways as well. You mentioned, you know, the the role that you all are also providing in terms of associate degrees. I wonder when we think about what it means to, like, be entirely successful, maybe like 100 percent transfer to four-year schools is not the goal, um, or is it? I wonder how you guys think about room for improvement and whether you feel like there's more room to improve. Well, it's it's not everyone's goal to transfer. I mean, we uh, where we're um, targeting our, our resources as well is growing the number of industry-based credentials that we offer, and that is to offer those uh, skills. Maybe a person is participating for the very first time. Maybe they're upskilling. Maybe they're reskilling. Maybe they're setting along that career path. I've I've worked in the two year space my entire uh, almost my as my entire professional career. So sometimes the goal of the student is just to complete one course. It may not be to, you know, have have a certificate or a degree. It may be a person that wants to take an accounting course. In my view, their goal has been met, and we have assisted them in doing that. So transfer isn't. You're exactly right. It's not always the goal, and it's not always necessary. There are lots of really high-paying, high-wage demand jobs that don't require the baccalaureate. Now, you know, do I think that it's good to continue to learn and grow and all of that in your career? Well, you know, of course, you know, I, I do, but it really just depends on the field that you're in and what is necessary. And and my last question, if you were to sit down, and I'm sure there are leaders who come to you and say, like, what should we be doing differently? What are what are some of kind of the first things that a school should be doing as they try to improve their transfer and degree for your degree completion rates for students? Um, what's some of the low hanging fruit here, things to look at first and make sure you're doing right? You have to start by accommodating the student with the skills that they're coming in with. And, and a colleague of mine who is very on target say, you know, we need to stop um, hoping for the college ready student and be a student ready college. So what do you do then to, to, to do that? Well, we have to have high quality academic support services that are available to our students to take advantage of. And that means in person and online. We have to have a faculty that want to engage students 
and that their their primary purpose is teaching. And Nancy Sorensen is the chancellor of Louisiana State University, Eunice. Thank you so much for your time. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Consider. I'm Aubrey Uhas. Louisiana's marshes are in a race against rising seas. Over the last few years, studies have warned of tipping points in the state's land loss crisis, where wetlands would begin to drown. The question of exactly when is tricky, but a new study has some answers. Here's the Coastal Desk's Hallie Parker. Last year, research showed sea level rise in the Gulf of Mexico was very, very high, like three times the global average. I spoke with Tulane University professor Dr. Torben Tornquist, who oversaw his grad student that led this new study. He said the rapid sea level rise really set the stage for this new research and then explained the biggest findings. So we basically set out to find out whether our coastal wetlands are able to keep up with these kinds of rates of sea level rise. And uh, we took advantage of this very extensive network of uh, monitoring sites that we have uh, here in Louisiana. And, uh, you know, at each of these sites, we, uh, we have water level data and we have data on uh, uh, surface elevation change off the wetland surface. So my student, Guangdong Li, who led the study, he uh, crunched a lot of numbers and he basically found that in the past uh, 13 years or so, so that time period with these high rates of sea level rise, that almost 90% of the sites were unable uh, to keep up with this. This also allowed us to make some predictions, given that we have, uh, you know, there are sea level projections for the remainder of the century and beyond uh, that are kind of specific for this region. And we use those to assess what the implications are for uh, potential wetland loss uh, going forward in time. And that showed that if we stay on the climate scenario that we are on right now, then we expect by the year 2070, so about 50 years into the future, that about 75% of our wetlands will be either lost or in the process of being lost. And when I say in the process of being lost, that probably means within a few decades at the most. Wow. I mean, immediately when I hear that, I'm like, that kind of sounds terrifying. And that's a prediction that we didn't have before, right? Well, we had predictions that, uh, you know, looking into the future that, you know, we've kind of crossed the threshold. But yeah, the one question we could not really answer with any precision was, you know, how much time they might have left, right? How, how long is it going to take before these wetlands really drown? Uh, and that we now uh, can say a lot more about based on this uh, latest study. What was your reaction to learning this information as your student was doing this research? Well, uh, you know, it, it's always very mixed, right? Because it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, it sounds really weird because it, you're absolutely right. It's a terrifying finding. Uh, at the same time, as a scientist, it's an incredibly exciting opportunity because it's, uh, it's, you can think of it as a natural experiment 
but in the real world, right? You know, having that opportunity is 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 kind of unheard of. So, yeah, we were excited about you know the scientific potential uh, of doing this work, but at the same time, you know, it it also became clear very quickly that yeah, the the results are uh, are pretty depressing. You know, just to give a very simple example, uh, my daughter was born in 2010. So 2070, she will be about the same age as I am now. You know, I remember when, you know, when I was a grad student and we were still in the 1900s, uh, you know, we, we talked about the year 2100, right? That was always the standard time horizon for climate projections. But that always seemed like something really far away in the sense that, you know, that's multiple generations. Uh, but now we are suddenly talking about like, oh, wait a minute, this is, you know, all our kids, they're, they're, they're going to be, be around to see this. You know, that really makes a difference. What do you hope that Louisiana policymakers take into account knowing this research? Well, I think there is a very, very clear message that is also very explicit in the paper, and that is, these these future uh, pathways that our coast could take, they are very, very closely uh, connected to our climate trajectory. In other words, are we going to stay on the current uh, path in terms of carbon emissions, or are we going to be able to move away from that and, and you know, move towards... Uh, you know, say a Paris Agreement goal, where we make sure that 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 global warming stays below two degrees Celsius, um, that could certainly make a difference. Now, with that, we should also be realistic. I mean, under any, even if we meet the most ambitious Paris Agreement objective, we're still going to see continued wetland loss in the future, but it's not going to be as fast and dramatic as uh, if we stay on the, the path we are on right now. So if we, if we decide to go on <clears throat> with uh, um, fossil fuels, we don't uh, strive to uh, become carbon neutral by 2050, as our, our former governor set out as, as a major goal for Louisiana, then, uh, yeah, then <clears throat> it's quite likely that the scenario that, that we found through this study is is the most likely scenario to play out. There will be more wetland loss, that's for sure, and it's even quite likely that it's going to accelerate, but we don't want it to accelerate at, at rates that we absolutely can't handle and don't know how to, to deal with. Because, you know, we're talking about mass relocation of people, and uh, it's going to be at a completely different scale than... Uh, uh, you know, for example, we, you know, something that has gotten a lot of attention in last in the last few years is the uh, Ile de Jean Charles community that has, you know, retreated inland. That's a very small number of people compared to what we're going to see in, you know, in the course of this century. Torben Torinquist is a geology professor for Tulane University who studies Louisiana's coast. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. 
I'm Aubrey Uhas. Thanks to our guests, Tanya LaViolet of the Aspen Institute, Chancellor of Louisiana State University, Eunice Nancy Sorensen, our very own Hallie Parker, and Tulane geology professor, Torben Tornquist. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Today's episode was produced by Matt Bloom and Aubrey Purcell, and it was engineered by Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation.